Well, I had no idea what I was doing when I was handed a youth pastor job at the ripe old age of 21. Thankfully, Glenn, an older seasoned youth pastor, knew a little bit of what he was doing and he gave me some of his time. I remember our first meeting together at an IHOP pancake house early in the morning. Do those still exist? I can't say IHOP without thinking about Jim Gaffigan. I barely move. If you know, you know. If you don't know, try IHOP, you'll know. I met with Glenn at IHOP and we're sitting over breakfast and I said, Glenn, how do I be a good youth pastor? And he said, pray. I was like, cool, and then what? Like, that's just a spiritual answer, right? Just pray in Jesus. And he was like, yeah, pray. And, and I learned over time that Glenn wasn't the type of guy who just said that because that's the right answer or the spiritual answer or the biblical answer. Glenn said that because Glenn believed that. So my second time meeting with Glenn, it wasn't at an IHOP pancake house. It was meeting him in his driveway at 5 a.m., where he said, get in my car. I got in Glenn's car and we drove around his community. The people in his church, we would stop out front of their houses and pray for families and students in his youth group before they woke up and went to school and went about their day. Then my third time meeting with Glenn, he said, come and join me this time at 5 a.m. again, but I'm going to have students from my youth group here and we're going to be praying. So I joined Glenn and his youth group, and, and, and we spent time praying before these kids went off to school. And as we dropped the kids off at school, and Glenn and I were driving back to my car, he said, I just love hearing my students pray. When I hear them pray, it helps me to understand their hearts. And I've heard Glenn say this time and time again since then. See, what a person says reveals a lot about what they believe a lot about what they question, a lot about what's going on internally. Jesus himself taught that out of the overflow of the mouth, the heart speaks. Or out of the, sorry, I got that one wrong. You get it, right? Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. See, that's why I have you say hello to one another, because I'm a terrible performer. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. That's what Jesus teaches. And if this is true, when we pray, when we open up our mouths and pray verbally, it, it reveals something. Some of you are like, that's terrifying because I don't know how to pray. Well, that might mean, that, that could mean a ton of things. It doesn't mean that you don't have a passionate heart for God. It may mean that you're more concerned about how others perceive you, which is a whole different topic. The point here is, though, that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so often when we hear somebody pray, it does reveal some of what's going on internally. And that's what's amazing about John chapter 17 is it's a prayer of Jesus. In this prayer, Jesus' prayer in John 17, it reveals his intimate relationship with God and his desire for intimacy with us. This entire chapter is a prayer of Jesus. Now, Jesus' prayer in Matthew chapter 6 gets more um, attention. It's titled the Lord's Prayer, right? It's uh, Matthew chapter 6. It's, um, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And in that prayer, in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says, I'm going to teach my disciples how to pray. He says, when you pray, you should pray like this. And so he gives them some tracks to run on. This is some of the way that you should pray. This is how your heart should be postured when you pray. But here in John chapter 17, which is known as the high priestly prayer, we see Jesus' heart in prayer. So Matthew chapter 6, he's saying that this is an example of how you, my followers, ought to pray. But in John chapter 17, it's just this window 
into the heart of Jesus where we get to understand who he is, what his relationship with God the Father is like, and what his desire for me and for you is like. And it's one of relational intimacy and closeness. So over the next three weeks in this Advent season, we're going to look at John chapter 17. It's kind of broken into three sections. Verses 1 through 5, Jesus prays for himself, which seems kind of weird, right? Jesus prays for himself. Yeah, he, he, he talks about his relationship with God to God. We're going to look at that portion of the prayer this morning. And then next week in verses 6 through 19, Jesus prays for his immediate disciples, those who are with him in his earthly ministry. We're going to look at that portion of the prayer next Sunday. And then the Sunday after that, December 17th, the, the last section, verses 20 through 26, Jesus prays for me and for you. He says, those who will believe because of the testimony of the first disciples. Jesus actually has us in mind 2,000 years later, people on a different continent, different language, different background, different culture. He prayed for us in his earthly ministry that we would be one, that we would be united, that we would walk with him. And so that's what we're going to look at over the next three weeks. And I know it's Advent season. Usually we go to like a birth passage, not a death passage. But I wanted to keep going with John, and I think there's something incredible here in John chapter 17, and we're going to see that the, the very reason we celebrate Advent is because who Jesus is and what he came to do is why it matters. And so we're going to take this snapshot from the end of his life and consider what Jesus is doing here. We're going to see how his prayer reveals his heart, his intimate relationship with God and his desire for intimacy with us. And that's kind of the, the big picture of the whole chapter. Now this morning, as we look at verses 1 through 5, we're going to see that it reveals Jesus' posture towards God and his identity as the God-man or, or, or theologically known as the hypostatic union. Um, I don't know very many big words. I'm like, I'm like Cook County educated, if you know what that means. That's like up north Minnesota, public school, northern Minnesota education. So for me to like know and then remember a big word, it's a big deal. And the hypostatic union is like the one big theological word that I know and remember, so I love to use it as often as I can. <laughs> Christmas season is my favorite. Hypostatic union, hypostatic union. It's this, this reality that Jesus is God and man, that there's this union between hypostasis, God and man. This is what Christmas is all about. It's revealing this unique identity and this mystery behind who Jesus is. That God, the creator of the universe, came in flesh. He didn't set aside his godhood. He, he continued to be God. He, he, did, he did humble himself to the point of becoming a human being, taking on human form and likeness so that he could empathize and sympathize and understand you and I and our human experience. That's a Amazing. So this morning, as we look at these five verses, we're going to see Jesus' posture towards God and then a little bit about his identity as the God-man. Look at verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, and, and, and I've said before, verses, uh, chapters 13 through 17, it's one big unit where Jesus is giving his disciples this kind of departing address. He's preparing them for his death his resurrection, then his ascension, his departure from their midst. And, and uh, we've been in this for months, so I can't summarize all of what he's been saying in chapters 13 through 16. But now he's closing it down with this intimate prayer between God that, that the disciples over here, 
that John the Apostle records for you and I to learn from. When Jesus had finished, uh, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven. Even that very act right there, he lifted up his eyes to heaven, is important. It shows us Jesus' posture towards God. Oftentimes when we pray, right, what, what do we say when it's time to pray? Bow your head, close your eyes, right? How many of you grew up hearing that, thinking that, believing that? A lot of you, yes, bow your head, close your eyes. And, and, and there's nothing wrong with that posture, We've been talking about tensions in the Christian life as we've gone through, John. And there's a tension here, even in our posture in prayer, between a bowed head in humility and a raised head in acceptance. I think it's interesting here that Jesus, his, his posture is to lift up his eyes towards heaven. And throughout the Old Testament, in Jewish tradition, when they would pray to Yahweh, the God of heaven and earth, their posture was this. It wasn't this. It was this. They would look up, and Jesus here is looking up symbolically saying, okay, God is over all. He's above all. In order for me to relate to God, I, I have to look up. He's in the heavens. And even if, you, if we think about these postures, looking up, it's, it's what a child does to a parent. Physically, they have to look up, right? The, the parent is, at least for early years of life, the parent is taller, a kid who's dependent on the parent has to look up to the mom. They have to look up to the dad. They, they have to reach for what they need, reach for what they want. Even Jesus' posture of looking up is showing us his own dependence upon God the Father. That he has humbled himself. It says that his prayer, so he looks up, this is his posture, and he says, Father, Father, he's looking up like a child looking up to a parent. The hour has come, glorify your son. His posture is as a son before a dad. Now, now often, think about just even our posture in prayer and in, in life, like a, a bowed head can mean humility, reverence. It can also mean shame and disappointment. Like we, we, we bow our head when we're lying. We bow our head when we are sorrowful rejected, hiding, and closed off. And we, we lift our head with joyful acceptance. We lift our head to look around with anticipation, with excitement. I think Jesus here is showing us this posture. This is throughout the scriptures too, this posture that sometimes when we pray, we need to be reminded to lift our eyes up to God who is in the heavens. And even this posture, it's this posture of, of saying, God, I trust you. God, I know that I can come to you. God, I can look to you. I don't have to just look down and look away. And this is part of the tension in the Christian life, right? Sometimes we do need to come in humility and reverence and, and, and bow down. God, I am guilty. I have sinned yet again. I'm not worthy to be in your presence. And then you know what the gospel does? It reminds us because of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and what Jesus has modeled. God comes and he lifts us up, his kids, his sons, and his daughters. In the act of our humility, I'm not worthy, I'm not worthy. He lifts us up and says, look at me, child. Come to me. Come to the throne. You're accepted. You can have joy. I will replace your sorrow with my joy. So I don't want to overdo this point. There's a lot else going on in this passage, but church family, 
even just notice that posture that God invites us to come. There are times for us to look down in humble repentance, but there's also times for us to look up in joyful acceptance. And here Jesus is looking up, surrendering, and saying, I can't, I can't wait to be with you, Father. We are one. He goes on, he says, um, so, so this language, right? He says, first part of the prayer in verse one, Father, the hour has come, glorify your son. Jesus' posture towards God is that of a child. Like this intimate and dependent relationship between child and parent. There's this, this is part of this whole, his identity as God, man. Like, Jesus is God. He says, glorify your son, that your son may glorify you since you have given him all authority. Uh, down here in verse 5, it says, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus has eternal glory. He is one with God the Father. He has been for all of time. He existed, as verse 5 says, before the world existed. God and Jesus and the Spirit created all things that we know and see and taste and touch. And they existed before that. In fact, they've always existed. They've eternally existed. And yet, in the incarnation, in Jesus' embrace of humanity, he has postured himself underneath God the Father as a son. What that shows us about Jesus is that he's willing to be dependent upon God the Father, the same way that a child is dependent upon a parent. The same way that a child flourishes best as they trust their parent, knows best. This is, this is the posture of Jesus before God. Jesus models for us, as, as the book of John has been talking about over and over again, that it, it uses this word pistis, which means trust, faith, belief. The Bible doesn't just call you and I to have trust in God, to have faith in God, to believe in God. It also gives us an example through Jesus of what it looks like to have trust in God, to believe in God, to have faith in God. Jesus gives us an example of how we are to live. He says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. In this language here of glorification, there's a little bit of a... (laughs) It's a loaded word, the word glory. Sometimes it gets over-spiritualized, and we're like, glory to God, glory to God, glory to God, without really knowing or understanding what that means. And sometimes it gets under-spiritualized. This idea of glory is all over the scriptures and it's foundational to who Jesus is as it relates to God and to us. But we need to do a little bit of explain it. Glory, this, this Greek word, it comes from doxa and it means to recognize someone or something as it truly is. To just see something clearly. It, it's kind of similar to like authenticity where it's like, okay, that, that thing is really what it is. And so when Jesus says, Father, the hour has come, glorify your son, he's saying, make me to be seen as I really am, reveal who I really am, that your son may glorify you. I want to make you known as you really are, God. That's Jesus's job. That's what Jesus did. As Colossians tells us, he's the firstborn 
of all creation. He is the image of the invisible God. So Jesus' role in life, the, one of the purposes of his humanity is for you and I to be able to see what God is like. He glorifies God by revealing who God really is, helping us to see him clearly. This, this word doxa, glory, it can also mean to ascribe worship or value, to, to praise and honor something. And, and so oftentimes we use glory, it, it's, a, it's a tricky word because it means to see something as it clearly is, but it also means to lift up and to exalt in glory. And so the depth of the word is that as we see Jesus for who he really is, we will lift him up and honor him and value him because he has worth and honor and value. And so here's, here's what Jesus is saying in these passages here. As he prays that God would glorify him, that he would in turn glorify God, Jesus is asking God to recognize him for who he is, to ascribe him worth and value. Think about the, the tenderness of that as Jesus approaches the cross. God, remember me, your son. Remember how much you love me. I'm about to bear the sin of the world on my shoulders. I am about to become sin. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians, uh, 2 Corinthians, I'm drawing a blank, 521, either first or second, drawing a blank at the moment, that he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God. And so Jesus is feeling in his body and his soul this angst as he approaches the cross. All of their sin, all of my sin, all of your sin, all of the disciples' sin, the sin of the world, the hatred, the rejection, the, the just fill in the blank, is about to be placed upon Jesus. He's saying, Father, remember me. Remember who I am. Remember my worth and my value to you. Remember that as a human, and, and this is this tricky nature of the hypostatic union, he is also God, but in the flesh, he's also a man. And he's saying, remember my worth and my value. And, and as a son, Jesus' worth and value is derived from God, just like you and I. He's created in the image and likeness of God. Human life has dignity and worth and value from womb to tomb because we're created in the image and the likeness of God. Human beings have glory to God. Glory in the sense of we have worth and value to God because we carry his image and his likeness. And Jesus here is saying, remember me, God. Glorify me. See me for who I am. Ascribe the worth and the value that I derive from you back to me. Jesus is both a spiritual being like God, and he's a human being like us. This is this mysterious identity and nature of him as the God, man. And so here's just an application from this point about glory. Jesus has a reciprocal relationship with God the Father. The love, glory, worth, value, honoring, praise that, that, that God gives to Jesus, Jesus gives to God, it goes both ways. It's a reciprocal relationship. Jesus, as a human being, as the Son of God, has this worth, this value in his human identity. 
not just in his divine identity, but also in his human identity. So this is true for Jesus. This is true for us, the adopted sons and daughters of God. You have worth and value, so much worth and value, that God, as the person of Jesus Christ, came to redeem your value and to ascribe the value that God gives you in the image of God, to restore it, to renew it, and to make it new. Jesus goes on, verse 2, he says, since you have given him all authority, and, and, and he's speaking about himself, since you have given me all authority over flesh to give eternal life to all, to all whom you have given him. There's an interesting note here where Jesus just, he prays about his authority. God has granted all authority in heaven and on earth to Jesus. And if you've been around the Bible for a while or around Park for a while, you know that we often quote Matthew chapter 28, the end of the Gospel of Matthew, uh, because we are called to be and make disciples. And Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And here, Jesus is saying, all authority has been given to me by you, God. I'm your son. I'm the, the heir of your inheritance. You have given me authority over your inheritance. And I think it's interesting that he says, given him all authority over flesh. So this means that we should submit our very lives to God, the authority. The scriptures will, will refer to him as master. He's our master. He's our boss. He's in charge. He has all authority over our very flesh. Not just our schedule, not just our agendas, not just our money, not just our habits, not just our spiritual disciplines, our very flesh. So we should submit to him. This, this prayer, though, from Jesus also reveals that if God has given him all authority over flesh, all flesh, that means all people should submit to him, this also means that when you and I struggle to submit to him, he still has authority over our flesh. Which means the desires of our flesh, which are often contrary to the desires of God, cannot overpower the authority that Jesus has over our flesh. Church family, this is good news. The desires of your flesh, which often war with the desires of God, cannot have final authority over you. Jesus has authority over you even in the battle against your flesh. Even when you lose the battle against your flesh, Jesus still has authority over your flesh. He doesn't use his authority over our flesh to control us, micromanage us, and not allow us to make the decisions that we make. Right? That's what we want sometimes. Like, why do I keep sinning? Why do I keep doing the same things? Why, why does my flesh have so much control? It's like, well, because I've given you authority to make decisions with your flesh. However, I still have all authority over your flesh at the end of the day. This means that our fleshly impulses cannot thwart God's grace. You hear me? Your fleshly impulses, which do not always align with God's will and desire and ways, those fleshly impulses cannot thwart God's grace in your life. He says, since you have given him, me, Jesus, all authority over flesh to give 
eternal life. This is a gift of God. This, this, this idea of eternal life, it's, it's God's gift. It's God's doing. Keep this in mind, church family. God has saved you. God is saving you. And God will continue to save you. Jesus is faithful and powerful over your past sin. Jesus is faithful and powerful over your present sin. Jesus is faithful and powerful over your future sin. Right? Doesn't he say, you've given me all authority over all flesh. He has authority over your past, present, and future fleshly sin. Don't worry about it. This doesn't mean go on sinning. Like it, some of you are like, well, that's, that's, that's kind of scandalous, pastor. Like you better scare us into holiness. That doesn't work. That doesn't, like this is the scandal of the gospel. Where like, honestly, if we don't walk away saying, I can go do whatever I want and I'll still be saved. If, if there's not a part of you that, that wrestles with that, like we haven't gotten the gospel. Because the good news of Jesus is he doesn't save us based off of anything that we've done. He has authority over our flesh. He has authority over life and death. And he saves us. He grants eternal life. Look at it. He says, uh, you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life. It's a gift from God given to us. Eternal life isn't something that we earn. It's something that's gifted. Eternal life isn't determined by us. It's determined by God. Eternal life is, is knowing God. He says um, in verse 2, to, okay, so you've given me all authority over flesh to give eternal life to all, to, to all whom you have given him. Now, we could spend some time tearing this, part, this verse apart and trying to figure out what that means. There's this theological word for this called election that Christians will fight about and separate over and divide over, and I just have no interest in that. I think there's some mystery here. Jesus is saying that all these that you've given me, they have eternal life. And, and so if you have a relationship with God, know it's a gift from God. Why? I don't know. I don't understand all that. But also just hear this gospel call and reminder here that he is powerful. He has authority over your flesh, your fleshly impulses. So there's like this, there's like this perseverance that happens from the grace of God. Those of you who have studied a little bit of theology, you're like, you're going to slip into this acronym called TULIP. I'm not going to because I don't care about acronyms. It came way after Jesus. And, and sometimes it can be kind of helpful and sometimes it can be really hurtful and destructive. And I just don't care about that. What, what I want us to see here is the heart of Jesus that he's revealing his relationship with God and his desire for us and his ability to hold us. How does that work? We don't know. What we do know is Jesus is saying, I have all authority over all flesh and I have given eternal life to all whom God has given me to give eternal life to. Is he speaking specifically of the disciples here? Specifically of, I, I don't know. But there's something fascinating here and intimate here about Jesus saying, I have authority over their flesh. And, and anyone who God gives to me, I will not lose. You couldn't lose your salvation if you tried because it wasn't yours to earn in the first place. Jesus is saying, you're mine. Don't believe the condemnation of the devil who when you sin, he's like, ah, you're not really a son of God. You're not really a daughter of God. Sons or daughters of God don't do that. 
Don't believe the condemnation of religion. Well, this is what a good Christian looks like. This is what a good Christian does. This is what it would look like if you would master your flesh. Don't believe the promises of Scripture from the mouth of Jesus. All that have been given to me are mine. I have authority over their flesh. Eternal life is a gift. And he says that eternal life in verse 3, and this is eternal life, that they know you. This word for, for knowing, it's this intimate word. It's not just about mental assent. It's about experience. We talk a lot about walk in the park here at Park Community Church, an amazing restaurant down the street. Like, if you haven't been there, you've heard us say, it's good, you should try it. That's like, oh, I know about that restaurant, I've heard about it. But then when you try, you're like, oh, now I know walk in the park. That's what, that's what Jesus is saying our relationship with God is like. It's not just that I, that I have this mental assent to some doctrinal ideas about some fictitious God in the sky or some religious system of doctrines and creeds. No, I have an experience, a living, daily experience, a relationship with a God who knows me. And any relationship with any being has its ups and downs, doesn't it? Those of you who are married, is your relationship with your spouse always on the, up and to the right? Those of you with parents, is your relationship with your parents always up and to the right? Those of you with siblings, your relationship with siblings always up and to the right? Those of you with coworkers, relation, right? Those of you with, regardless of your life stage, relationships are hard because it's this knowledge, this this intimate knowledge of another being. And this is what we have with God the Father through the person of Jesus Christ. He says, this is eternal life, that they know you intimately. Not that they know about you. Not that they can check off all the boxes on the statement of faith. Not that they know tulip and agree with it or don't agree with it. Not that they know God in an intimate way. Jesus here in this prayer is revealing his heart. Eternal life is a result of this relational intimacy with God the Father, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is what we are called to. Jesus is saying that our salvation comes from intimate relationship, not from intellectual affirmation or from moral compliance to a set of rules or laws. He goes on, verse 4. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. I made you seen for who you are. I made you known as you are by doing the good work that you've called me to do. By healing, by preaching, by caring, by showing compassion. So Jesus here is tying his obedience to God the Father with his trust and dependence, this childlike trust and dependence Right? He comes to God, he looks up, Father. He takes the position as a son, and because of his posture towards God, in humility, a son before a father, he's able to say in verse 4, that I, I, I glorified you by doing what you asked me to do. What an incredible prayer for us to peer into. Like, that's the heart of Jesus. Jesus wants to bring glory and worth and value and honor to God by doing what God asks him to do. It's a beautiful picture for us. God, how do I glorify you? Well, 
What if you do what I ask? Oh, that's how Jesus glorified you. I, okay, help me to do that. Help me to surrender. Help me to take the next step of obedience. Help me to do the little things day in and day out. And when I fail, thank you for your example, for your sacrifice. Then he closes out verse 5. Well, he doesn't close out. I will close out with verse 5. And now, Father, glorify me. Lift me up. Exalt me in your own presence with the same worth and value, the glory that I had with you before the world existed. He ends, again, I end on this incredible note and reminder that Jesus the baby that we celebrate at Christmas time is God in flesh. God made known to us in the person of Jesus Christ. This verse, verse 5, it reminds us of the very truth that we celebrate during Advent, that Jesus existed eternally with God in glory, but he humbled himself to come as a man and walk among us in order to save us. Jesus was born in lowly circumstances and lived his life in obscurity. Jesus was hungry and thirsty. He experienced sorrow and joy, friendships and backstabbings, holiness, and the effects of unholiness, loneliness, and community. He was mistreated. He was ridiculed. Ultimately, he was crucified, a death without glory or honor. And he came to die so that you and I might live. As I close this morning and transition to communion, as we come to the table, I just want you to listen to these words from this poem from St. Augustine about the incarnation. He says, Man's maker was made man that he, ruler of the stars, might nurse at his mother's breast, that the bread might hunger, the fountain might thirst, the light sleep, the way be tired on its journey, that truth might be accused of false witness, the teacher beaten with whips, the foundation be suspended on wood, that strength might grow weak, that the healer might be wounded, that life might die, and in his death is our life. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for who you are that you lived as a man among us, God incarnate, humbling yourself, becoming obedient to God the Father's will, obedient to the point of death. I pray that you would meet each one of us where we're at this morning and that you would draw us into deeper and more intimate fellowship with you. Jesus, thank you for revealing your heart to us through prayer. Thank you for the Apostle John who recorded that prayer. Thank you for those who have worked throughout the centuries and ages to preserve that prayer that we could read it in our language in 2023 in St. Louis Park. I pray that you would take these words, massage them into our heart, and give us deeper and increasing intimacy with you, the Father. We come to the table hungry this morning for you and thirsty for your forgiveness which we have without question because you have authority over all flesh and you gave up your flesh that our flesh might live.